Sections 30 to 44 of Berkeley's Treatise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Talking Meat. Sections 30 to 44 of A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge, Part 1, by George Berkeley. 30. The ideas of sense are more strong, lively, and distinct than those of the imagination. They have likewise a steadiness, order, and coherence, and are not excited at random, as those which are the effects of human wills often are, but in a regular train or series, the admirable connection thereof sufficiently testifies the wisdom and benevolence of its author. Now the set of rules or established methods, wherein the mind we depend on, excites in us the ideas of sense, are called the laws of nature. And these we learn by experience, which teaches us that such and such ideas are attended with such and such other ideas in the ordinary course of things. 31. This gives us a sort of foresight, which enables us to regulate our actions for the benefit of life. And without this we should be eternally at a loss, we could not know how to act anything that might procure us the least pleasure or remove the least pain of sense. That food nourishes, sleep refreshes, and fire warms us. That to sow in seed time is the way to reap in the harvest. And in general, that to obtain such or such ends, such or such means are conducive. All this we know not by discovering any necessary connection between our ideas, but only by the observation of the settled laws of nature, without which we should be all in uncertainty and confusion, and a grown man no more know how to manage himself in the affairs of life than an infant just born. 32. And yet this consistent uniform working, which so evidently displays the goodness and wisdom of that governing spirit whose will constitutes the laws of nature, is so far from leading our thoughts to them, that it rather sends them wandering after second causes. For when we perceive certain ideas of sense constantly followed by other ideas, and we know this is not of our own doing, we forthwith attribute power and agency to the ideas themselves, and make one the cause of another, than which nothing can be more absurd and unintelligible. Thus, for example, having observed that when we perceive by sight a certain round, luminous figure, we at the same time perceive by touch the idea or sensation called heat. We do from thence conclude the sun to be the cause of heat, and in like manner perceiving the motion and collision of bodies to be attended with sound, we are inclined to think the latter the effect of the former. 33. The ideas imprinted on senses by the author of nature are called real things, and those excited in the imagination being less regular, vivid, and constant are more properly termed ideas or images of things which they copy and represent. But then our sensations, be they never so vivid and distinct, are nevertheless ideas, that is, they exist in the mind, or are perceived by it, as truly as the ideas of its own framing. The ideas of sense are allowed to have more reality in them, that is, to be more strong, orderly, and coherent 
than the creatures of the mind, but this is no argument that they exist without the mind. They are also less dependent on the spirit, or thinking substance which perceives them, in that they are excited by the will of another and more powerful spirit. Yet still they are ideas, and certainly no idea, whether faint or strong, can exist otherwise than in a mind perceiving it. 34. Before we proceed any farther, it is necessary we spend some time in answering objections, which may probably be made against the principles we have hitherto laid down. In doing of which, if I seem too prolix to those of quick apprehensions, I hope it may be pardoned, since all men do not equally apprehend things of this nature, and I am willing to be understood by every one. First, then, it will be objected that by the foregoing principles all that is real and substantial in nature is banished out of the world, and instead thereof a chimerical scheme of ideas takes place. All things that exist exist only in the mind, that is, they are purely notional. What, therefore, becomes of sun, moon, and stars? What must we think of houses, rivers, mountains, trees, stones, nay, even of our own bodies? Are all these but so many chimeras and illusions of the fancy? To all which, and whatever else of the same sort may be objected, I answer that by the principles premised we are not deprived of any one thing in nature. Whatever we see, feel, hear, or anywise conceive or understand, remains as secure as ever, and is as real as ever. There is a rerum natura, and the distinction between realities and chimeras retains its full force. This is evident from section 29, 30, and 33, where we have shown what is meant by real things in opposition to chimeras or ideas of our own framing but then they both equally exist in the mind, and in that sense they are alike ideas. 35. I do not argue against the existence of any one thing that we can apprehend either by sense or reflection. That the things I see with my eyes and touch with my hands do exist, really exist, I make not the least question. The only thing whose existence we deny is that which philosophers call matter, or corporeal substance. And in doing of this there is no damage done to the rest of mankind, who, I dare say, will never miss it. The atheist indeed will want the colour of an empty name to support his impiety, and the philosophers may possibly find that they have lost a great handle for trifling and disputation. 36. If any man thinks this detracts from the existence or reality of things, he is very far from understanding what hath been premised in the plainest terms I could think of. Take here an abstract of what has been said. There are spiritual substances, minds or human souls, which will or excite ideas in themselves at pleasure. But these are faint, weak, and unsteady in respect of others they perceive by sense which, being impressed upon them according to certain rules or laws of nature, speak themselves the effects of a mind more powerful and wise than human spirits. These latter are said to have more reality in them than the former. 
by which is meant that they are more affecting, orderly, and distinct, and that they are not fictions of the mind perceiving them. And in this sense, the sun that I see by day is the real sun, and that which I imagine by night is the idea of the former. In this sense here given of reality, it is evident that every vegetable, star, mineral, and in general each part of the mundane system, is as much a real being by our principles as by any other. Whereas other men mean anything by the term reality different from what I do, I entreat them to look into their own thoughts and see. 37. I will be urged that thus much at least is true, to wit, that we take away all corporeal substances. To this my answer is, if that word substance be taken in the vulgar sense, for a combination of sensible qualities such as extension, solidity, weight, and the like, this we cannot be accused of taking away. But if it be taken in a philosophic sense, for the support of accidents or qualities without the mind, then indeed I acknowledge that we take it away, if one may be said to take away that which never had any existence, not even in the imagination. 38. But after all, say you, it sounds very harsh to say we eat and drink ideas and are clothed with ideas. I acknowledge it does so, the word idea not being used in common discourse to signify the several combinations of sensible qualities which are called things. And it is certain that any expression which varies from the familiar use of language will seem harsh and ridiculous. But this doth not concern the truth of the proposition, which, in other words, is no more than to say, we are fed and clothed with those things which we perceive immediately by our senses, the hardness or softness, the colour, taste, warmth, figure, or such-like qualities, which combined together constitute the several sorts of victuals and apparel, have been shown to exist only in the mind that perceives them. And this is all that is meant by calling them ideas, which word, if it was as ordinarily used as thing, would sound no harsher nor more ridiculous than it. I am not for disputing about the propriety, but the truth of the expression. If therefore you agree with me that we eat and drink and are clad with the immediate objects of sense, which cannot exist unperceived or without the mind, I shall readily grant it is more proper or conformable to custom that they should be called things rather than ideas. 39. If it be demanded why I make use of the word idea, and do not rather in compliance with custom call things, I answer, I do it for two reasons. First, because the term thing, in contradistinction to idea, is generally supposed to denote somewhat existing without the mind. Secondly, because thing hath a more comprehensive signification than idea, including spirit or thinking things as well as ideas. Since, therefore, the objects of sense exist only in the mind, and are withal thoughtless and inactive, I choose to mark them by the word idea, which implies those properties. 40. But, say what we can, 
some one perhaps may be apt to reply he will still believe his senses and never suffer any arguments how plausible soever to prevail over the certainty of them be it so assert the evidence of sense as high as you please we are willing to do the same that what i see hear and feel doth exist that is to say is perceived by me i no more doubt than i do my own being but i do not see how the testimony of sense can be alleged as a proof for the existence of anything which is not perceived by sense we are not for having any man turn sceptic and disbelieve his senses on the contrary we give them all the stress and assurance imaginable nor are there any principles more opposite to scepticism than those we have laid down as shall be hereafter clearly shown forty one secondly it will be objected that there is a great difference betwixt real fire for instance and the idea of fire betwixt dreaming or imagining oneself burnt and actually being so if you suspect to be only the idea of fire which you see do but put your hand into it and you will be convinced with a witness this and the like may be urged in opposition to our tenets to all which the answer is evident from what hath been already said and i shall only add in this place that if real fire be very different from the idea of fire so also is the real pain that it occasions very different from the idea of the same pain and yet nobody will pretend that real pain either is or can possibly be an unperceiving thing or without the mind any more than its idea 42. Thirdly, it will be objected that we see things actually without or at distance from us, and which consequently do not exist in the mind, it being absurd that those things which are seen at the distance of several miles should be as near to us as our own thoughts. In answer to this, I desire it may be considered that in a dream we do oft perceive things as existing at a great distance off, and yet for all that, those things are acknowledged to have their existence only in the mind. 43. But, for the fuller clearing of this point, it may be worth while to consider how it is that we perceive distance and things placed at a distance by sight. For that we should in truth see external space and bodies actually existing in it, some nearer, others farther off, seems to carry with it some opposition what hath been said of their existing nowhere without the mind the consideration of this difficulty it was that gave birth to my essay towards a new theory of vision which was published not long since wherein it is shown that distance or outness is neither immediately of itself perceived by sight nor yet apprehended or judged of by lines and angles or anything that hath a necessary connection with it but that it is only suggested to our thoughts by certain visible ideas and sensations attending vision which in their own nature have no manner of similitude or relation either with distance or things placed at a distance but by a connection taught us by experience they come to signify and suggest them to us after the same manner that words of any language suggest the ideas they are made to stand for insomuch that a man born blind and afterwards made to see would not 
at first sight think the things he saw to be without his mind or at any distance from him see section forty one of the forementioned treatise forty four the ideas of sight and touch make two species entirely distinct and heterogeneous the former are marks and prognostics of the latter that the proper objects of sight neither exist without mind nor are the images of external things was shown even in that treatise though throughout the same the contrary be supposed true of tangible objects not that to suppose that vulgar error was necessary for establishing the notion therein laid down but because it was beside my purpose to examine and refute it in a discourse concerning vision so that in strict truth the ideas of sight when we apprehend by them distance and things placed at a distance do not suggest or mark out to us things actually existing at a distance but only admonish us what ideas of touch will be imprinted in our minds at such and such distances of time and in consequence of such or such actions it is i say evident from what has been said in the foregoing parts of this treatise and in section one hundred and forty seven and elsewhere of the essay concerning vision that visible ideas are the language whereby the governing spirit on whom we depend informs us what tangible ideas he is about to imprint upon us in case we excite this or that motion in our own bodies but for a fuller information in this point i refer to the essay itself end of sections thirty to forty four recording by talkie meet in amsterdam and talkymeet.livejournal.com End of sections 30 to 44 of Barclay's Treatise.